Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. I want you to, to stand with me, will you? And I want us to look at a, a tremendously important passage from Scripture. Um, and I could say that every Sunday, and it would be true. Every passage is full of the Spirit of God and has lessons for us. But some of the... It's important to say that this is true when the passages don't seem as relevant. And this is one of those passages that may strike you as a little less relevant than others. And I want you to believe in your heart of hearts that this passage is speaking to you and has things to say to you. So our passage is Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29 through 31, comes towards the end of Christ's Olivet Discourse, this private sermon or teaching that he gives to his brothers on the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it the Olivet Mount of Olives Discourse teaching, all right? The Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will, to gather, they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The word of the Lord. Please join me in praying that, uh, stay standing and keep your, put your, raise your hands if you would to ask God to bless this word. Father, your word is eternal, it is true. But except the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts, it's, we don't understand. It's jabber and and we can't comprehend it. May my words be helped by the Holy Spirit. May our hearts be opened by the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, thank you. I do, I do want, need, and ask for your prayers beyond when we come to the, the Word of God. I want you praying for the pastors, for our wisdom, for our, for our courage. As reading this week, and Paul says, pray for me. And so I say to you, like, Paul, pray for me. Pray for us. You know, it's, it's vital that we be praying for our, our leaders in the church. So I, I hope that you will do that for me. All right, we're looking at a passage this morning that obviously comes in the middle of something. And what it comes in the middle of is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus teaching to his disciples on the occasion of his last Tuesday on earth. It's Tuesday of what we call Holy Week, you know, the week of Christ's last week, his, the week of, of his passion, all these religious words. It's just his last week. It's the week of his suffering. Passion means suffering. The last week, his, his week of suffering, the week when his suffering reaches its climax. It's Holy Week. And it's Tuesday of that week, Friday, he dies. He spent the day inside the temple 
And on the attack with the Pharisees, we, we have to remember that he's being attacked and, and, and the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, everyone is combined against him, everyone. Disciples have seen it for days. They know it. They know that, that Jesus is hated. Thomas earlier in the trip to Jerusalem said, well, you know, we're going to Bethany to, to be with Lazarus because Lazarus has died, to be with his sisters. They didn't know that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him. You know, let's go. He's going to die. We may as well die with him. We're committed. And so they have an understanding of the, the negative nature of they're living it. You're the ones who don't understand, all right? You and I don't grasp how, how incredibly conflict-filled and negative these final weeks of Christ's life are. Not to say that the preceding three years have been full of joy and, and glory and, and earthly recognition. They haven't. But these final weeks are awful, awful, awful. Conflict, 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 hatred, hatred, planning to kill Jesus, scheming of ways to kill Jesus, his own disciples scheming with the priests to kill Jesus. Just, it's crazy. It really is. It's not a sweet time. And so Jesus is leaving Jerusalem, and as he leaves Jerusalem on this this last Tuesday of his life, as he leaves the temple where all the authorities of that temple have said to him, who are you and what are you doing? And he's pronounced his woes on the Pharisees. He speaks over Jerusalem on his way out. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How I would gather you under my wing as a hen gathers her, her chicks, but you're unwilling. So your house is left to you desolate, empty. You are now cursed you are cursed you have chosen desolation and now that choice has become an abomination that you will be known for forever and they say at the end of this week they say ah let his blood be on us and our children they don't care about being desolate they have no regard for christ and they do not intend to bear god fruit by worshiping him, the fruit of repentance, which is the first fruit God demands of you. They don't care. So Jesus is leaving the temple, and he's just said that your house is left desolate. The disciples point out the temple buildings. They're saying, look at this. How on earth is this going to be? De I mean, this is power. This isn't desolation. This isn't emptiness. This isn't barrenness. It's power, man. And Jesus says, oh, yeah. You see all these things that tell you not one stone here is going to be left on another which will not be torn down. And they look and they go, what? So they reach the Mount of Olives, which is down the valley from the temple and up the next hill. The disciples come to him in private and say, tell us, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus has to disabuse them of this idea they have that the ruin of the temple is also the end of the age. That the ruin of the temple presages comes right before the end of the age. He's saying, no, it's not. These are two separate events. The ruin of the temple, he doesn't say this, but it's clear from, from history that it's only 40 years in, 
in the distance, in the future. The other events are far distant. And so he's making it clear to his disciples that the two can't be tied, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And he goes through and he tells them of what's going to happen before the end of the age. And it's a, a series of distinctly negative events, wars, famine, rumors of war, which is almost as bad as war. You know, the anticipation of a bad thing is often worse than the bad thing. Wars, rumors of war, famine, earthquake, people are going to be seeking to kill you, you're going to be killed, there will be all sorts of lawlessness, the hearts of most are going to grow cold towards me, they're going to, because of lawlessness, because of the evil of the age, people are going to say it's not worth following God, God isn't here, God is not bringing things to culmination, this is, it's the, the attitude of the American church today, you, Everyone's saying, well, we've got to accommodate culture because we're not going to win. You know, the evil, maybe God doesn't care about these things. Maybe we should be a little less strident in our approach to these things because look at all the lawlessness. Look at it. It's here and there and everywhere and we can't win this battle. And so Jesus says many will fall away because of this. They'll fall away from fruitfulness. They will become desolate. They will stop producing the fruit that God requires, which is repentance and every other form of fruit, including the fruit of your body. I mean, people in this dark day are saying, wow, I don't want to bring children into this world. You thought this. It's a dark world. You have been intimidated by the lawlessness of the age into exactly the thing Jesus warns of because you say, I can't bring children in here. This world is awful. And you're denying the sovereignty of God. Those who go this route are actually just saying, God, I don't trust you, and you're not worthy of my trust, and I'm going to trust myself. And so we come through this period of, of tribulation, deep tribulation, when we see desolation, fruitlessness, barrenness, triumphant and sitting on the throne and everyone worshiping it and it becoming the great abomination of the earth. Jesus says there's going to be, at that point, the hardest tribulation that's ever occurred since the beginning of the world and ever will be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, they'll be cut short. So then there will be a rising false Christ, false prophets. They will do great signs and wonders. Let me, let me just say to you, if ever an alien comes to earth and says, I have superior intelligence, don't think, well, this is God. Think, this is what Jesus warned about. Great signs and wonders. The kind of thing that our age would fall for just like that. Now, I'm not, I'm not a follower of what was his name, Herbert Armstrong, the cult leader who said that the aliens have come and given him things. But, you know, this is the kind of thing you need to be aware of and be on guard against. Some native, some extraterrestrial intelligence coming and telling us things. And we say, whoa, whoa, surely this must be God. Or just simply wonderful miracles done by a man. Just incredible things. This is what Jesus is saying is going to happen. But he says, when I come, 
It's going to be like lightning shooting from the east to the west. That's what the coming of the the Son of Man will be. It's going to be so clear and visible that no one is going to, at that point, say, what is this? They're going to say, the Son of Man. And so, what Jesus is speaking of in our passage this morning, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, sign of man, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This, <laughs> this is a blessing of election of God choosing you, of God giving you a heart that bears fruit, of God giving you his spirit of repentance, of God allowing you the strength to obey him and having elected you for good deeds, taking you through those good deeds that he elected you to perform. This This blessing of election is a distinct one. It differs from last week when we said election brings protection. Election causes the saints to be preserved. They do not fall. They can't fall for the false prophets because they're elect. But if it were possible, they'd be falling, Jesus says. The days are cut short for the sake. God protects the elect, but this blessing is what? It's vindication. Vindication. What Jesus is teaching here to his disciples is that there is coming a day when there will be vindication. There's coming a day when God will divide. There's coming a day when God will say, you and not you. And the you will be in glory, and the not you, our passage tells. Vindication. Vindication, great vindication, great vindications. They only happen in novels and movies. I mean, You would think that some people would deserve vindication, but no one ever gets the vindication they deserve positively or negatively. Not in this life. Now, I'm going to back off that statement, but let me just point out to you that if anyone deserved vindication in the last century, it's probably Winston Churchill, who had the courage to drag his nation. As my dad said, living through World War II, the opinion of every American was that Winston Churchill was just one incredible dog, a bulldog, who was dragging his nation to victory from day one to the nth day, to the end. Winston Churchill said, we are doing this, and they did it, and they won the war because of the grit, the determination of their leader. And so what happened after the war? Well, Winston Churchill got voted out of office immediately. He didn't get vindication. He didn't get ticker tape parades. He didn't get... If you've seen movies, old black and white newsreel type 
from the early 60s when he died, it is striking. It's like all the people were embarrassed about voting him out of office 20 years before. That savior of the nation. And he was carried in a barge down the Thames River, black barge with soldiers standing on it, his coffin. And it looked like all of England came out and lined the Thames and dead silence. It was an amazing sight. He didn't live to see it. He didn't get vindication. He didn't see his funeral. Novels, movies, oh, such powerful vindication. I was reading a, a series of novels a few years ago until I said, this is garbage, <laughs> crap. And I said, no, no more. And it's gone on from there, a number of novels. It was called Red Rising. Any of you read them? Science fiction, yeah. It's wonderful how in science fiction and fantasy and these things, you can have great vindication, you know? Red Rising, it's the, the poor boy born in, but he's special, you know? He's special. And the, he's born on Mars, and he's what's called a hell diver. He has to just take... The, the, the special soil of Mars out for the sake of people who live on other planets who are the gold, they're the reds on Mars, the golds are the, the, the elites. And, but he has a dream and he has a wife who the, the golds kill, they murder. And he, so he goes on a quest to become a, a fake gold in order to turn over the golds. And, and he leads the rising against the golds as a gold, but his people on the red planet don't understand that he's actually one of them and he's their savior. But he works on their behalf and he fights for them and he suffers for them. And at the end, they recognize that he is our hero. He has done this for us. And, and they, they rise and they applaud him and he is the hero of Mars. Everyone is at his feet. Great, you know, but it doesn't happen that way in life. No, in life what happens is more like the stories that all these fantasies, you know, Star Wars, all of them are based on, Harry Potter. They're all based on the stories of the Bible, the truths of God which are eternal. A savior who comes to save his people, who dies, all these kinds of things. They're everywhere in these. And, and the reality is that when God is working through a man, his life looks more like that of Stephen the deacon or Moses, the leader of his people, who grew up in a wealthy home, the son of a, of a, a princess but who identified with his people. And as he grew to be 40 years old, he was concerned for the people he'd been born. They didn't know he was concerned, but he was for them. One day he sees one of the Egyptian masters whipping an Israelite slave. And he goes and he takes that whipper of his kinsman and he kills him. And then all the Israelites rally to him. They rise up and they say, our leader, our deliverer, we love you, Moses. No. <laughs> you know, they said, who are you? Who do you think you are? And so he goes out to the wilderness for 40 years, 
fleeing because now the Herod hates him, or the Pharaoh hates him because he's killed one of the supervisors and he's revealed that he's still a Hebrew at heart. So he goes out and he lives in Midian. God comes to him in the burning bush and says, you're going to go back and set your people free. And Moses says, uh, really? Me? I'm 80 years old? He says, you're going to go back. And he goes back and all the people love him and they obey him because he's come back to rescue them, hasn't he? But of course, that's not how it happens. They complain, they rebel. They are absolutely not willing to give him a storybook vindication. They don't. This is life. You live for God and then you die. You understand? You live the way God tells you to do and then maybe you're killed. You live for God in Stalinist Russia or Maoist China or many other places and you get thrown in the gulag and you starve to death. That's reality. This is what Jesus has been saying is going to happen. And so you sit and you say to yourself, look at this world, look at everything around us, look at the life that I'm leading, you know. This is not a winning life. This is not a, it's not working. God, you're not making it work. Now, I, I do not want to diminish the reality of a form of vindication that comes in this life and to say that it does not ever happen in any way. It certainly does. The Bible says, and it is true, that the path of the just, those who bear fruit for God and love him, is as the light of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. Your life, if you're a child of God, is like the light that first peeps over the horizon and it grows and it grows until it reaches the full light of day. And as you get older and you follow God, there is the vindication that the world sees you and it knows there's something there and it can't deny a Christian in full vigor and glory. Now it can kill it, but it can't deny it. And there is that form of vindication that the righteous grow in their glory as they get older and as they follow God. Stephen is killed, but his face, the first Christian martyr, as he's being killed, being stoned by the authorities in Jerusalem, his face glows with the light of heaven and he looks like an angel. This is the promise. So there's a certain vindication. And there are other forms of vindication that come in this life. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This one requires you to, to change perhaps your thinking. Because we have grown in America to love fruitlessness and to say that children are a curse. Oh, the Bible says that every child is a reward. And as children grow in a home where, the, where they grow up and come to love the Lord, there is a certain vindication that comes to you as a father or a mother that's, 
that's special and that really can't be denied. So there is temporal, in time, vindication. But it's not complete. And it's not eternal. It is, in this life, more internal than external. It will be seen and it is real, but it's given to you by God and you must take heart in it. It's not blazed from the mountaintops. So what we have in our passage is some teaching. And the teaching is that there is a vindication that's coming. There's coming a day when vindication will be visible in the whole world that vindication will be eternal and it will be better than any fantasy novel despite the fact that there are many being vindicated on that day it will be better than any novel movie any book any worldly parade anything you have ever seen heard of envisioned in your mind watched on a movie depicted on the pages of a book this vindication is going to make those look like chicken feet. If you remove the reality of vindication from the Christian life, all you have is a mess of rather sweet but impotent moral principles. The Christian life without vindication is just a nice morality. The principles that guide us, the fruit we seek, may be worthy. But without vindication, they lack eternal consequence. But that's not what Jesus teaches here. At the end of a great period of tribulation, when the church and the people of God are saying, How long, God? How long? How long are you going to allow this to continue? When will you cause this to end. Jesus says that the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Those should be familiar terms to you. These words are a redolent of Old Testament prophecy. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that this is prophesied, that that Jesus is actually using the very words of prophets here to describe those coming times. Prophets who were 700, 800, 1,000 years before. So Jesus is saying, oh, those words are still true. This time is still coming. And he's saying it to you today. You may say, hey, this was said 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is saying, yeah, things that were said 1,000 years ago are still going to happen. 1,000 years ago when he was on earth. Isaiah says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I also put an end to the pride of the arrogant and bring low the lofty pride of the ruthless. Isaiah says, and all the host of heaven 
will wear away. And in those great words from the Messiah, which are taken directly from him, and the sky will be rolled up as a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away, all the heavenly host, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Isaiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, all of them speak of the sky being destroyed, the heavens falling. Revelation speaks of this day and says there's coming a day. Exact same prophecies. Solomon writes in Psalm 72, let them fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. As long as the sun endures, let us fear God. He's speaking of a day when the sun and the moon will be gone. There is coming a day of darkness. A day that is a day of tribulation, but a new type of tribulation. An ending of one type, the beginning of another. God will roll up the sky as a scroll. On that day, a sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And that sign will be so obvious, so clear and so powerful and undeniable that it will put a stop to every rebel mouth. The mouths of the lawless will suddenly go. They will see the sign of the Son of Man. The sky rolled back like a scroll, the Son of Man sign, and their mouths look. There's coming a day. And on that day, the tribulations are not aimed at the followers of Christ, but the vindication comes in judgment. You understand that vindication requires two things. One is the elevation of those who are right. The other is the dispossession of those who are evil or those who are wrong. Vindication is not the ungame. <laughs> How many of you ever played the ungame? Yeah, you and me, girl. The ungame was a game that only mothers buy it or bought it, I don't think it's available anymore. It's a game that you play and there are no winners. It's just fun. <laughs> but it's, it's made so that there isn't a winner. And so you play the game and you have fun and isn't it nice, everyone wins. Vindication is not the end game. There are winners and there are losers. There have to be. Because one set of people has lived by one principle, by one faith, and another has denied it and refused it and rejected it and rebelled and persecuted the one group. And in the end, God doesn't say, well, you all get a prize. No. In the vindication that's coming, there will be mourning. Jesus says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, this is not the children of God. 
The children of God are not of the tribes of the earth. They're the family of God. They are the elect of God. And they're not included in this general sorrow. This morning is the same morning that's spoken of by Zechariah to the Jewish people who've rejected Christ. And he says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. He's speaking of the house of David and of Israel and of the morning, but it will be their morning that they have rejected Jesus. Those Jews who have not followed Jesus will be those who mourn. Zechariah is talking to them. Jesus is speaking more generally here, but it's the same truth. All the tribes of the earth will be mourning with a grief like that at the death of the firstborn son. It's clear from this, as Calvin writes, There is no reason, therefore, why any person should expect the conversion of the entire world. For at length, when it will be too late and will yield them no advantage, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. But it's not to their advantage. They will not be converted. The tribes of the earth will see the sign of Christ in the heavens and they will realize that they have chosen wickedness and they will weep bitterly anguish and gnashing of teeth because they have lived for the world and denied the return of Christ, his reign, his power, wagering their lives against him and then his sign appears and the heavens are laid bare, the sky rolled up like a scroll and the the sign of the Son of Man is writ across the sky at which point they understand that they have been rejected by him they have rejected. There are losers. There must be losers for vindication to take place. There will be division, a declaration of guilt, a banishment, and a declaration of innocence and a welcoming. Vindication requires winners and losers. Vindication requires division. Vindication requires judgment. David says to God in Psalm 7, Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. But what David is actually saying in the Hebrew there, and saying, Vindicate me, O Lord, is judge me. Literally, judge me, Lord. We as children of God say to God, God, bring your judgment. We trust your son's blood to deliver us from the wrath. We take our shelter under his wing. We look to him and we find in him hope. So come and judge the world. Judge us. David says, judge me, O Lord. Judge me. Judgment is essential to vindication. Judge between me and my foe. Judge, O Lord, between the followers of Jesus and their persecutors. So vindication is for a great mass of people, judgment. It's also judgment for those who are going to be vindicated. 
but they are judged under the type, the blood of Jesus Christ. And God says, you are mine. You worship me. You have borne fruit for me. You have lived through these evil days by faith in my son. And now come into my rest and receive my blessing, my child. And so we see enacted here, told about by Jesus, what will be enacted one day that's told of in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this, this gathering to Christ of everyone from the four ends of the earth is not just of those alive. Paul writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. The bodies of God's elect buried alive are summoned forth. And while the world is mourning, they join Christ in the air. So I want to close with a series of four implications of this coming vindication. First, this is a bodily vindication. The bodies rise. Bodies join Jesus. Paul makes it very clear that bodies come forth. You are not saved as a spirit. There's not a division of your spirit and your body, your soul, in some way that the body is of no account to God. Your, your body is saved. Your body is vindicated. Your body is important to God because it is the way that faith is enacted. God will not let your stainless, virtuous faith, which is complete, but betrayed by the flesh. You understand what I mean? Ah, my flesh goes, but I believe in you, God. God will not allow that kind of a separation. He calls your body forth to meet him in the air. That's the resurrection when your body comes up. Your body and your spirit together in the presence of God. What does this mean? It means that your body is essential to your life as a Christian. That you restrain it. That you give no room to the lusts of the flesh. That you fight the lusts of the flesh in your body and don't give your members to dissipation and to sin. What you do in your body is what you do. Second, your body is given you to be spent for God. I can't, I can't believe and I can't stand the sort of triumphalist literature I read often, histories of the past that talk about the dark days in America when a woman would marry at 18 and have 12 kids and die at age 34. And there are many, many women this happened to. Half of all women prior to the 20th century died at some point in childbirth. That's what I've heard, half. 
And we think it virtuous and a sign of our enlightenment that, that we won't take risks with our bodies like this. That we're going to have just our two rewards from God. No more, thank you God. As though our bodies are not to be spent for the glory of God. Spend your body. That means your time. That means your energy. That means, guys, going and helping people rather than reading your Bible sometimes. Having things that are important, that your body is engaged in things that are productive and lead to fruit. You can't witness without your mouth. You can't witness without your time. You can't witness without your feet. Take charge of the members of your body and use them for fruit and quit celebrating a life that's fruitless because it keeps this immaculate body. I have this immaculate body. It is such a, a vision of perfection. It's strong, it's good looking, but whoa, I don't want to do anything that would hurt my body. This is the temple of God, after all. It needs to be, needs to be beautiful. It needs to be incorruptible. It needs to be... And yet, even as we're cosseting our bodies and being so tender with our, our precious selves, we're also using our bodies for the lust of the flesh. And we're, we're using our eyes... And the internet, and we're using our mouth for gossip, and we're doing all these things with our body, but we're saying, still, my body, it's, it's a temple. I'm not going to spend it in anything that would really hurt it. Imagine if this had been the attitude of Christ. Imagine if the church had been filled with early Christians who lived this way. Spend your body, spend your body on fruitfulness. God expects fruit from your body. Your body is the primary treasure you have. Use it for God. Use it, don't bury it, all right? Second, remember that God says, vengeance is mine. God has decreed that you are not going to be able to exact your revenge on people in this world. You're never going to get the full recognition. You're never going to get the full vindication. And God says to you, don't even try. Vengeance is mine. Do not seek vengeance. Those of us who seek vengeance and who go out and attack with our mouths or with our actions, people who don't understand the coming of Christ. It's quite simply impossible to believe in the coming judgment and at the same time to want to attack people for the harm they've done you. The Bible makes this explicitly clear. It says, you are not to seek revenge on your enemies. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But what else does it say to you? It says, forgive your enemies, right? Forgive them. Even if they come to you seven times in a day confessing the same thing over and over again, forgive them. Jesus says, if you do not forgive men, you will not be forgiven. That's how serious this point is. Do not seek vengeance. 
He says, forgive. He says, love your enemy. Not just forgive, love them. Look to their good. Seek their welfare. There is coming a day. And those who oppose you because they don't, they don't follow God, your real enemies, not the enemies that you accrue because you do bad things. They're not really your enemies. <laughs> but those who hate you because, because you belong to God and because you're lawful when they're lawless, there's going to be a day of judgment. Have pity on them. That day will be enough. Don't add to it. Be like Christ and say, Father, forgive them. You're to forgive them. You're to love them. The Bible says you're to pray for your enemies. How many of you routinely incorporate into your prayer times, you know, at least once a month, a time when you pray for the people you know are your enemies? Raise your hand if you do this. Very few. All right. Do none of you have enemies? How many of you have enemies? How many of you have people that you should be praying for then? You know what I'm saying? So don't seek vengeance. Spend your body. Don't seek vengeance. Third, the church exists to be in macro, uh, micro, what will one day happen in macro. It is a small uh, representation of the great thing to come. All right? And that includes vindication. That includes judgment. So the people of the church are told in the Bible, in Corinthians, don't judge the world. I think that many of us find it easiest to judge the world. We want to say, oh, that's the world, oh, the wicked world, oh, the bad world, oh, the bad, bad, bad people there, there, there. And we have the list of worldly organizations and people that we really think are awful and we're willing to speak against. The Bible says, do not judge the world, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. But judgment is to take place within the church. I was talking to a brother in this church this last week and he told me that he went to a church at one point and uh, there was a wealthy guy who seemed to be a good friend of the pastor in the church, and this wealthy guy was selling shares in his business. So my friend said, well, you know, upstanding guy in the church, kind of a leader, friend of the pastor, I'm going to invest. And he did invest, and then he was talking to the pastor, mentioned it, and the pastor said, oh, don't tell me you gave your money to so-and-so. And my friend said, well, yeah. I mean, he's your friend. He said, oh, I wish you'd talk to me. Oh, oh, you shouldn't have done it. He's, he's going to, he's, he's not, you can't trust him with money. It's gone. He's deceptive. My friend looked at the pastor and said, well, then why is he a member of our church? Judgment begins in the house of God. We must speak to the gossips. We must speak to the angry men. 
We must speak to the greedy. We must speak to the lovers of money. We must speak to the racists. We must speak and call out sin. 90% of the time it will lead to good things. 10% of the time it will just harden. And then we need to judge and cast out. A church which does not judge is a church that is disobedient to God. We must spend our bodies. We must not seek vengeance but love our enemies. We must judge within the church. And finally, we're to cry out to God. We're to say to God, God, hasten your coming. You know that the Bible says that under the altar in heaven, in the days leading up to the new heaven and earth, under the altar there's collected the souls of whom? Come on. Yeah, who said that? Thank you. The martyrs, all the souls of the martyrs. And they're there in heaven. They're in the presence of God. But what do they cry out day and night underneath the altar of God? How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long? How long? How long are you going to wait before you bring vindication? How long? It is right to seek the vindication of the Lord. We must look to that day with longing because the minute you stop looking and crying out, how long, O oh Lord, you surrender to the world. You become, rather than a man or a woman of faith, you become one of the lawless when you stop crying out, how long? You're like Lot and Sodom who's grown inured to the evil. God preserve us from growing inured to the evil of our day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the promise of a coming vindication. May we stand in the judgment, Father, and may we look for it eagerly. May we not be of this world, but may we be of your family, not a tribe of the earth, Father, but the elect of God. Father, I pray that we will obey you. Give those who have not repented in our midst this morning, Father, a spirit of repentance that they may start offering to you the fruit of their lives as a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to you, Father. Give us repentance. Give us sorrow, give us faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.